0: Welcome to The Lit Review, a podcast sparked by a moment of urgency, recognizing mass political education as key for our liberation struggles. Every week, your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad, will chat with people we love and respect about relevant books for the movement. Everything from history to theories around gender to sci-fi and beyond. We know that political study is not accessible for a variety of reasons. The high cost of books, academic jargon, the failures of our underfunded school systems, time barriers, etc. Our hope is that this podcast helps address some of those issues, making critical knowledge more accessible to the masses. Think Spark Notes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May. Thanks for listening.
1: All right, hello. We are here today with episode 28. Hey! (laughs) Um, So we're actually today sitting in Paige May's apartment um, in this beautiful, gorgeous apartment. I love, there's just books all around us um, and it's really beautiful. How are you doing today, Paige? It's I'm good. It was a hectic
0: but beautiful morning. I'm actually really excited. We have, right now as we speak, we have this crew of uh, young people and folks from BTGNC who are working together, young people from Asada's and BTGNC who are doing a train takeover around the new No Cop Academy. And so they're out there spreading the good word, talking about this $95 million cop school that Rom wants to build, wow. which is so bogus. Yeah, so it was it was a little hectic getting that up and going, but... I'm excited to check Twitter.
1: Yeah, people were like, "Wait, you're leaving us?" And we're like, "We're sorry. We have to record this podcast." But uh, they're in good hands. Um, and BTGNC—that's Black Transgender Nonconforming Collective—along with Asada's daughters um, and uh, Dyke March Chicago—is actually going to join good. them as well. So it's going to—it's—it's it's powerful. We can't wait to check Twitter after this podcast. But. Um, I am super excited about who is with us today. Um, this person um, was a professor at UIC when I was at UIC, um, didn't have a class with him, but always was big uh, a big fan from afar, um, and actually uh, Fugitive Days was one of the first books I read when I became active in the um, anti-war movement against Iraq, um, when I was uh, doing Campus Anti-War Network, and then I joined Students for Democratic Society in the in the life re- Launch um, and uh, Bernadine Dorn was also like a huge, huge, um, uh, f- just figure for me, a feminist figure, um, and, and somebody I aspired to to be like. So, like, this is just a really exciting podcast. So, we're here today with Bill Ayers, um, and he will s- be speaking about the book "Demand the Impossible: um, A Radical Manifesto." Um, and so, Bill, how are you doing?
2: So nice to be with you. Thank Yay. you so much for inviting me. I'm yes. just thrilled, and I think. Your podcast is so uh, so needed and so important. So, I'm thank just, you. I'm very honored to be a part of it.
1: Thank you. So, we like to start off the co- the conversation with uh, who you are, what do you do, and why.
2: Okay, uh, you've got my name, and uh, my name is Bill Ayers, and I'm a I'm a retired professor from the University of Illinois at Chicago. I've been retired for about seven years. Um, I teach adjunct at a lot of places right now. DePaul University in Chicago and i continue to write and speak and organize wherever and however i can and frankly you know one of the great things for me about this moment is that there's such a regeneration of movement activity and energy and i've never felt that it went away i don't buy the public relations i don't i don't buy the public relations for example about the 60s. I think the way people talk about the 60s is mainly myth and symbol. you know, And it's partly to put a wet blanket over young activists today as if back in the day we had the best demonstrations, the best music, the best sex. And I always want to say to people, no, it's all still good, you know. And (laughs) not only that, but nobody looked at their watch on December 31st, 1969 and said, oh, no, it's almost over. Nobody lives by decades. So, But what I am witnessing is a regeneration of the centuries-old black freedom movement. That is beyond thrilling. That's something that we all have to dive into and be excited about. And so there's that. And also, I think, Undocumented and Unafraid, the queer movement is more militant and more energized than ever. We have a lot of work to do to connect these movements to bring war into the into the conversation and so on. But I'm thrilled to be alive and active in this generation.
0: Thank you. I'm really excited the the beautiful thing about this book too is you wrote it. <laughs> uh, sure. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what led you to write the book, and I'm going to slide in a two-part question. So what led you to write it, and why did you name it what you named it?
2: Sure, thank you. Um, I, I should also say, because Bernadine Dorn is not here, but you evoked her in the beginning, just to give you a hint of who she is, we've been together for almost 50 years, and um fighting side by side we've endured prison and a lot of uh, other things together we've raised three great kids and and we have four grandkids together but i get trolled a lot by the right wing last summer i got a whole packet of information in the mail from right winger and it had a t-shirt that said had a picture of welch's grape juice and my wanted poster from back 40 years ago and under the welch's grape juice it said good free radical and under my wanted poster it said bad free radical (laughs) so so, so you gave, hung it up, right? So I gave, that's well pretty... I gave that one. I gave that one to my son Malik and he wears it to he's a teacher, he wears it to school. But um, then I had there was a bumper sticker in there and it said Bill Ayers and his wife should be in prison. And I showed it to Bernadine, and she said, his wife, no objection to the prison part. It was just, <laughs> don't call me his wife. <laughs> right? You know." So that's Bernadine. But, but the question, why did I write it, and, and what is the significance of the title? You know, I have thought for a long time that those of us who are progressive people and who are lifelong activists, who are committed to the cause, and that includes young people and older people, um, we are pretty sharp at naming what it is we're against. We're good at saying... We don't like this, or this is our critique of that. We're not as good at saying what we're fighting for, but you need to know what you're fighting for because it sustains you. If you don't know what you're fighting for, first of all, you can go off the track tactically and strategically. But secondly, you can't sustain the energy unless you have a vision out there in front of you of what you're striving for. And I, I, I'll i tell you, 30 years ago, the great South African revolutionary, Albie Sachs and... The Palestinian scholar and activist Rashid Khalidi sat in our living room and had a conversation about just this point. And Albi said that at the height of the war against apartheid, they would take the cadre and retreat. And they would take 48 hours or 72 hours. And they would say, what are we fighting for? And they would spend two, three days discussing that. And he said, the reason we did it, people would say, it's too urgent. We can't take time off. And Albie and, and the other leadership would say we must take time off because if we don't know what we're fighting for, we will do the wrong thing today and we won't have the energy to sustain into the world we want to build. That's what motivated me, the idea that it may be utopian. I've often been accused of being a romantic or a utopian, but and I plead guilty to a degree. I'm not utopian in the sense that I'm naive, but I am concerned about articulating a vision of what we want And this book was an attempt to do that. What are we fighting for? And the the title comes from um, a piece of graffiti that was all over France and the United States in 1968. And sometimes it's attributed to Che Guevara. But the graffiti was all over the walls. And it would say, be realistic, demand the impossible. And that's a nice way to think about it because why would you demand the possible? So why would you get into a debate about health care and say, oh, we're fighting for Obamacare. We're not We're not fighting for the troglodyte Republican idea of health care, nor are we fighting for Obamacare. We're fighting for universal health care for all as a human right, not as a product to be sold at the marketplace. That's what I was trying to do with this book, is to say, come on, what do we really want? Let's get out of the frame that's given to us by the powerful, and let's reframe the issues and demand what we know is not only in the. The irony is, of course, it's completely possible. That's why the title is kind of interesting to
1: me. Mm-hmm. So, me and Paige, um, like we just mentioned earlier, we're doing this uh, No COP Academy uh, campaign with. Um, over 20 different organizations in the city. Um, They keep endorsing every day, right? Um, And we're demanding to uh, basically defund the police, right? Um, And to many people, they see that as impossible. They're like, no, there's no way that you can't have police. There's no way that you can just defund them like that, right? Um, And so how does this book... Break down how you demand the impossible, and how does this book break down? Like how, like strategies, tactics. Like how do you find, figure out how you, um, how how you know what you're fighting for?
2: Well, one of the things that's so great about about framing it in this in this demonstration that's going on as we speak, is that it's a classic example of saying, okay, what is it that we want? We look at Rahm Emanuel at our at our leadership in our city, and we see him closing. 50 schools or 50 plus schools in the black community, in the brown community. And we say, wait, that is intolerable. But meanwhile, and we have no and and the whole myth about Chicago, Chicago's broke, you know, and um and and, and that's a myth. That's something I like the slogan that the CTU came up with, broke on purpose. But the fact is that when we when the leadership, when the ruling class, when the political class wants something. They can find the money right now. So they couldn't afford to keep schools open, but they can afford millions and millions of dollars for a police academy. So when we posit a vision that says, Stop the Cops, which is the title of one of the chapters in this book, Stop the Cops, or Abolition, Abolish the Prisons. Whenever I say something like this, and you all face this every day in your organizing, somebody always says, "Well, I, I, I know it's, it's cute to say that, it's clever, but it's not realistic. And I want to argue it's not only realistic, but it raises the deeper questions. So when you say defund the police, what you're partly raising is what would policing and public safety look like in a free and democratic society? We have an occupying force for police in this neighborhood, right where we're sitting. The police act as an occupying force. When they stop young black people on the streets and harass them, that leads sometimes to fatal confrontations. That's what we want to stop. And and we say, well, you got to have police. That's falling into a trap that's already laid for us. So reframing by saying, by asking a question like, what would policing and public safety look like in a free society with free people? What would that look like? So very quickly, just to go off this for one second, and then come back to your question. I was in Greece about, I guess, five or six years ago. I was invited to speak at an anarchist convention. And of course, when I got there, I immediately said, are you really anarchist? Because you're having a convention. That doesn't seem <laughs> that doesn't seem right. And, and we had a good time. But uh, through mutual friends, I went out to an island five hours from Athens where a, a man named Manolis Glesos had been the mayor. And I spent the day with Manolis. Manolis, you haven't heard his name, but he's quite famous in Greece. When he was 14 years old, he took took the Nazi flag off the Acropolis during the occupation, the German occupation of Greece. He, he was hunted. His brother was killed. Um, he spent a lot of time in prison. Um, but he maintained his radical outlook on life, his revolutionary perspective. And we spent the day together. He's in his mid-90s. I read about him last month. He was arrested in front of the Greek parliament last month. Um, so, wow. I mean, you know, that's a lifetime commitment. But Manolis and I, when we were walking back to the boat, he said to me, you know, very earnestly, he said to me, you know, Bill, I think you have the same problem in the United States that we have here. Mm-hmm. And I said, what is that? And he said, the, what prevents us from making a revolution is we don't think large enough. We don't think what we really want. What would it look like if we were really free? Not what they've given to us, not phony little choices between Tweedledum and Tweedledummer, but really something profoundly different. And he said, and frankly, I spend a lot of my time trying to give people... A sense of confidence because if you don't have the confidence you can change the world and you kind of feel well i know i want something better but i guess i have to have a mayor i have to have a chief of police and he said to me why do you need a chief of police in in a really free society why would you think immediately i need and this gets us to prisons immediately people say well if i say abolish the prisons, somebody will always say well what will you do with the really bad people and i always say who And somebody says John Wayne Gacy or somebody like that and some poster child. So I say, okay, I'll give you one prison cell. Who else? Okay, I'll give you Bush and Cheney. Now I'll give you Trump and and Bannon. Who else? And the problem is we've gotten into a mindset that says people make mistakes or break the law or whatever. They must be punished. Punishment must be caging. Then we get two and a half million people. And so if you start with the idea, we don't have to think in their terms. We can think in different terms. What would public safety be in a democracy. That's a a profoundly different starting point. So let's take the cops or let's take prisons to start. When I talk to college students and get down this road of abolishing prisons, the first thing people say is this idea that somebody must be in jail. But then once we unpack that a little bit, I often say to people, well, let's think of a thousand alternatives to caging. Okay, I'll accept some of your critique. Now let's think of a 1,000 alternatives. And you know, smart people sitting in a room, 10 smart people in a half hour can come up with a 1,000 alternatives to caging. That's where we begin. And the interesting thing is, just like with stopping the cops, it goes deep and it goes into questions like, what would good education look like? What would it mean to have a mental health care system? What would it mean if health care were free and available to all? What would it mean if you had child care? and that that was expected rather than some kind of privilege that you get if you're wealthy, and so on. What if decent housing was just an uh, assumed bottom line? Then you get to the point where there are so many alternatives to prison and to policing that we can police ourselves, we can manage ourselves. And the interesting thing also, just one last point on this, is that you go to a place like Detroit, which is, you know, kind of popularized in the national media as a place in total collapse, which is a lie. You go into some of the poor communities in Detroit and they've developed ways to survive and take care of each other because the cops don't come, because public transportation doesn't exist, because they are food deserts. So how do they do it? Well, they do it because people aren't stupid. And left to themselves, they can come up with a lot of alternatives to what we take to be just normal, everyday life which we should find unacceptable. So that's where I that's where I begin. Yeah.
0: So I really appreciate the the work that this book is doing as someone who does talk to a lot of people about w- why I'm an abolitionist and I've had that conversation many many times right where people just they call it crazy absurd yeah. right and yeah. I'm like it's actually so impractical to me that you think that this is the best that we can do and that this is working. Um, you're the one who's being unreasonable, right? Uh, and so I appreciate that you're, you're you're you've created something that can help people think through these things because it is a patient. Con- it's a conversation that does require patience. I think, um, and people are owed that. Uh, but I'm wondering what, how, how do you W- w- not necessarily the specific argument that you're making, but in your chapters, um, and we, we, I'm curious about what other issues you talk through as well, but do do you just sort of pose thoughtful questions or are you, do you feel you need to lay out a history of how we got here? Do you feel you need to offer an alternative? What do you think is necessary to make that, to, to get people to take it seriously?
2: Yeah, I, I, I want to go through that, but let me start with this notion of Patience and impatience, because in a way you 've nailed something that I think every organizer has faced in his or her life, which is yes, we need to be patient sometimes, mm-hmm. and we need to be deeply impatient other times and it's that dialectic working that out in a daily weekly uh, you know way is very, very complicated it's kind of like you know I see this bumper sticker around now and then that I like that says um If you're not pissed off, you're not paying attention. And I agree with that. If you pay attention, like this has become popularized because of the murder of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville. You know, she apparently in her, on her Facebook, her slogan was, um, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And I think that's true. But I want to add a bumper sticker that says, if you're only pissed off, you won't get to where you need to go. You have to temper being pissed off with love and generosity and solidarity and community. And how you do that in a daily way is almost, I mean, it's excruciating. <laughs> so yes, patience and impatience, um, a vision and hard work, all of that together. And working that out daily is, is, is the job of a, of a radical, of an organizer. So the way that I've laid this out is the first thing, and this is, I really do believe that this is a, a first requirement, for radicals and for revolutionaries and for progressives is the idea that we need to unleash our more radical imaginations. That is, we're, we're not imaginative enough. And one of the things I love about you two, but also the movements that you participate in, is you're big believers in poetry, you're big believers in dance, you're big believers in love and art. And I think that, the, and you're producers of those things. And I think that without that, we go off the track. So I think I think our imaginations need to be unleashed and we need to get out of the 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 box that we're put in. You know, I think of education which I I've been a teacher all my life and and as well as an organizer. I think there are common edges to those two callings. Um but but one thing that has always been true uh, for me as a teacher is that you know, you kind of need to start where people are, but you also need to kind of Have one foot striving towards a world that is not yet. You have to challenge people to think differently, and uh, and you have to challenge yourself. I mean, one of the great things about being a teacher or an organizer is you're always learning from your students or the the other people. I mean, a certain approach to teaching and organizing sees that when you knock on a door, you assume a three dimensional creature is going to be there. You assume that this person has a history, a a mind, a, a body, a spirit. Uh, a dream a hope that somehow has to be taken into account teachers do the same thing we start by seeing the students before us as as full human beings so you know reframing the debate is like this this is this is where i think i begin so in teaching every politician who gets to a microphone starts by saying we need to get the lazy incompetent teachers out of the system and you know as a parent and a grandparent I listened to that. What am I going to say? No, we need to keep the lazy, incompetent teacher there for my granddaughter. No, of course, you framed it, even though it's a a false issue and a myth. You framed it and you won. If I get to the microphone first, I say every kid deserves a caring, compassionate, um, intellectually curious well-rested and well-paid teacher in the classroom. I win that debate. So our job in part as radicals is to reframe. So each chapter, you were asking about about kind of how I laid this out. Each chapter begins with a kind of a Harper's Index set of statistics about the issue. So the chapter on abolition begins with a prison complex index. And it talks about the, the rising rate of incarceration, um, the the uh, rank of metaphorical correctional supervision city by population in all u.s cities the answer to that is second behind new york you know i mean that's how many people we have in prison the rank of the u.s in, in incarcerated populations in the world and you know this but it's first so you begin by saying here's a little map of what is and then you begin to explain it and for me that begins in this chapter on abolition by quoting the 13th Amendment of the Constitution, which you all know, and maybe many of your listeners know. The 13th Amendment basically says slavery is abolished except as punishment for crime. Mm -hmm. Well, there's the loophole Mm -hmm. uh, that led to the Black Codes, that led to all the, you know, the horror, the terror that took place following um, Radical Reconstruction in the South. And it's still going on. So we have abolition in the 1800s, and we have, uh, and we win, and then we have radical reconstruction, which was the most hopeful moment in American history in many, many ways. You know, things like W.B. Du Bois pointed out that the public school is a Negro invention. The idea that somehow it happened elsewhere no, it happened in the South with ex slaves, former enslaved people, saying, No, we want public education. And then you have the reaction to that and the terror of the latter part and the lynching regime and all that followed that. Then you have the civil rights movement, and that leads to Reagan and the reaction to that and mass incarceration and the bipartisan support for mass incarceration. Clinton and Reagan and Bush. You know, So we need to break that frame. So that's what I attempt to do. And then I try to offer solutions. What would a world look like If we didn't have prisons, what energy could be released if we did away with this billion-dollar industry um, and, and created alternatives in which we called on people's strengths, will, intelligence... What would that world look like? Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to do.
1: You started to break down the chapters a little bit. Can you, keep, can you keep going into that? Like, what are some of the other chapters in this book?
2: In a funny way, each chapter is a bumper sticker. So the first <laughs> chapter is, is called Possible Worlds, and that's where I make a plea for unleashing our imaginations. But then you have the substantive chapters. Chapter one, disarm. We We like to think, we Americans like to think that we're a peace-loving people. And all the patriotism that we're seeing rising up now is really a cover for the fact that not only are we not peace loving, it's not really a very decent society. And in some ways, if everybody has some kind of tinny patriotism waved in front of their eyes, they can ignore the the, the horrors that are going on. Uh, not only white supremacy and war, but also their own lack of meaningful work, their own lack of schools that function. I mean, the the human potential that's contained in this country is horrifying so chapter one disarm uh stop being a war a warrior nation stop being a spartan nation chapter two abolition do away with prisons chapter three shoulders to the wheel and that's about work and that's about rethinking work not as some exploitative and rethinking work and separating it from jobs you know we're caught in a jobs economy so listen to the news any day they'll talk about how many jobs were created or how many jobs were lost a job is a job is a job a prison guard is a job a cop is a job a a blackjack dealer is a job but that's not good work that's not work that we need and you need to separate and realize that the work of the world is endless the decent productive important work we could be doing rebuilding infrastructure and t- t- taking care of the youth taking care of the elders and on and on that work is endless but jobs are very limited so we have to make that distinction so i call that chapter shoulders to the wheel jubilee is the next chapter and jubilee comes right out of the bible and the idea is you know forgive the debt you know just forgive the debt we should not be in debt anymore and the way you do it is you say You're not in debt anymore. (laughs) Cancel cancel the credit card debt. I mean, one of the things, the the interesting thing is, in my lifetime, one of the interesting things about a country like Cuba, when it liberated itself from imperialism, first thing it did was cancel the debt. Mm -hmm. Of course, what are we going to do? Hang ourselves onto this predatory monster that's been preying on us? For all these years, hell no, the debt's over. Puerto Rico has to cancel the debt, you know, and get out from under that. So that's called chub- Jubilee. Chapter 5, Stop the Cops. Step, chapter 6, Universal Health Care for All. Chapter 7, Teach Freedom. Again, this idea that education should be a human right, and we should rethink it as a human right, not as a product to be sold at the marketplace, like a laptop or a screwdriver. And then chapter eight is Love the Earth. And that's about environmental justice and the need to save the planet. If you mush those together, those that is a program very similar to, um, it's a program very similar to, for, for example, the Black Lives Matter program. It's very similar to the program that came out of Canada in the sense that it's a vision of a, of a society that's post-capitalist, that's, um, that's democratic, that's free, and that and it is working on the important issues that we face as, hum, as human beings and as humanity, rather than struggling around the edges and the margins for little bits and crumbs off the table of this wealthy monster. You know, I look at, I mean, let me go to Chicago for another minute, because you all work on this, but here we are in the, richest country in the world, the most warlike country that's ever existed, even though we don't like to think that, and and one of the richest cities. My granddaughters, four years ago, going to a public school in Chicago, neighborhood school, uh, they did away with the art teacher. Three years ago, they did away with the music teacher. Two years ago, they closed the library. And last year, they had to bring their own toilet paper to school in the richest country in, in the world. So what were they saying to the families and kids of this rich country, you know, bountiful city. They were saying, if you can get out, get out, because we have no respect for you. We have no uh, concern about your well-being. We're going to starve you until you leave. And they're crushing public education, one of the last public institutions mm-hmm. that exists. And we have to fight back. And part, we, partly we do that by rejecting the bipartisan Democrat and Republican idea that education is a product. Mm-hmm. It's not a product. It's a right. And as a right... We should demand it for all children.
0: Okay, I have a lot of questions. But uh, how do, when you say demand the impossible, who do you think you are making the demand of? And is it as simple as, do you demand Rahm Emanuel? Da-da-da, you demand, right? Is it, is it and I, I, I can, I'll give a little bit of sort of the the thing I'm thinking through. And the thing I think through a lot is what when you reframe the problem, you often find the – it one of the immediate results of that is that you, I think, find that you are more powerful than what the system would have you believe day to day. Um, when you open up what you're asking for and you decenter, you know, the mayor or the government um, and what they're offering, it sometimes means that the community, right, is able to meet some of those needs in different ways. And so I, that's sort of what I'm getting at is – I don't, and I don't think that it's a one or the other, but can you talk a little bit more about, you know, are we just demanding this from our elected officials, or is this also a demand of ourselves in some way?
2: Uh, You know, I think, Pace, that it's, that it's um, absolutely not a demand of the powerful. It's not a demand on the powerful. It's a demand on ourselves. And, and so I'm glad that you framed it that way, because I know you think this way, and one of the problems that we have and one of the trick bags we get caught in all the time is that we think that where power and change happens is at the top. And it's actually completely wrong. The way you just said it, that people come to to understand that they have more power than they thought they had. As a teacher, as an organizer, I've always thought my main job isn't teaching a subject matter or isn't introducing a piece of literature. My main job is to reveal through somehow creating an environment and creating a challenge to reveal the agency that everybody already has. And and one of the ways I do that as a teacher is I say I, I say sometimes explicitly or implicitly, I can't teach you anything. I mean the 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 problem is that you can only teach yourself. And I can lay out lots of challenges and and lots of nourishment on that but the big lesson you have to take away is i have the agency and this is hugely important because one of the things that the powerful do again and again is they attribute to themselves a sense of culture history agency but the rest of us are written off by our statistical profiles you know age gender income neighborhood zip code and all the rest of it and that's not who we are that's not how we have to think of ourselves but we hear so often you're a young black woman living in a certain neighborhood that becomes a definition that you have to break from by recognizing that you weigh more than that you have agency that carries you way beyond that when i think about social change the only and I, the only thing i think about is fire from below that is i don't think if you look, take even a glance at history Lyndon Johnson passed the most far-reaching civil rights legislation since Reconstruction. He was a cracker from Texas. He was not part of the Black Freedom Movement. He responded to the Black Freedom Movement. But if you go back and look, Martin Luther King wasn't asking for a meeting with Johnson. Johnson was asking for a meeting with Martin Luther King. And there's a reason, because fire was coming from below. And that's what brings about change. Yes, there was a politician there who... Was effective and responsive but that's that would never have happened he didn't have a change of heart we act as if today if we could get the right candidate in with the right heart if we could convince the person that to change their mind then everything would be better absolutely false franklin roosevelt wasn't part of the labor movement but he responded abraham lincoln most tellingly was not only never belonged to an abolitionist party but you've probably never read his first inaugural address. The second inaugural address is the one that's in the civics books and in the history books, because that one could have been written by Frederick Douglass. The first inaugural address, he basically genuflects in front of the slave owners and says, I won't disrupt your enterprise. That's a stupid address. That's that's history rolled over that one. But Link, do you think Lincoln just changed his heart? He changed his heart when Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and John Brown did what they did and never let up. And that's what changes the world. So our job is not to fall into the trick bag of saying if we could get the right mayoral candidate, if we could just get behind the right person for president, all would be well. That's just a false, that's a a false trap. And so we can't go that way. Mm -hmm. I think we, we demand of ourselves to rethink education, to rethink healthcare, to rethink policing and prisons and war and when we demand that of ourselves, and do the serious rethinking, and build a movement that can carry that new thinking forward, that's when the world will change. Mm-hmm.
1: I have so many questions. Um, who do you think is demanding the impossible right now in Chicago?
2: Well, I see it everywhere, and the thing, you know, one of the things that people who commentators and talking heads and politicians, and especially the the corrupted Democratic Party, when they think about um, when they think about who's, you know, how to build a resistance, they think of themselves and they think of it in that very narrow frame, Democrats, Republicans. So the night of the election of Donald Trump, the Democratic leadership was all prognosticating and saying, oh, either they were saying, oh, it's a catastrophe. We've never been in a worse place in our lives, which is nonsense. They should try to think what slavery was like, you know, but but, or they they were saying, our problem was we didn't appeal to the white working class. That that analysis came out right away from the Democrats. And what does it even mean? They're saying, oh, the white working class in, in Pennsylvania was aggrieved. Oh, really? Was the black working class doing great? And what is the white working class anyway? How do you separate it? I mean, it's a white supremacist concept from the get-go. So I get impatient with that. And I think that what we see in Chicago today, it's not like we're stri- starting from zero again. The talking heads act like, "What are we going to do about Trump? Where do we start? Where do we start?" It's already started. It's been going on. So you look at at Chicago and you look at organizations like Black Lives Matter and Asada's daughters and Ella's daughters and um, BYP One Hundred, and you can just go across the board, undocumented and unafraid, fight for fifteen. I mean, folks like us. We, we can't get to everything that's happening, right? So you had to come here and leave a demonstration that was happening over there. That's because there's activity bubbling from below. And it's not always visible. You have to pay attention if you want to be a part of it. But it's always there. And what's going on right now in Chicago is so exciting that I have pro- hardly have time to sleep. You know, I feel like there's always <laughs> another another rally to attend, another street demonstration, another meeting, because we're trying to get it right and we're and and we're responding to the action that's actually happening. So I think that we are in a more remarkable place than we would be. We can't get de- we can't get deflected into taking all this energy into the next election, and I worry because I see that yeah. tendency. We can't get deflected into saying, um, "Well, there's nothing happening," and that's what kind of the commentary it says. But it's just not true. There's a lot happening, and we need to get with it. We need to join it, but we also need to talk to each other mm-hmm. across movements, as as many have said. You know, um, uh, you know, we can't. Build single-issue movements because we don't lead single-issue lives. Mm-hmm. And that's a hugely important thing. We are we are many things. We're not identified as one thing. So let's make sure we reach out and talk to each other. So I started by saying we need to reframe each of these issues. But the other thing is we have to connect them. So we have to see the ways in which war and warming are connected. We have to see the ways in which scapegoating and um, and white supremacy linked to Mm -hmm. occupation and war. We have Mm -hmm. to make these connections. And this is going to be a moment of real um, forward motion, I think. We're in it. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, the election of Trump, what it does for us is that it disrupts what would have been normal. It creates an abnormal situation. So Bernadine and I were going to the inauguration anyway and we were certain that Clinton was going to win. And we were part of a contingent that was going to go and build a, a peace ball. And we had our peace signs. And what would have been normal life would have been the warmongering Hillary Clinton in the White House, and us with our peace signs, and we would have all been normal, and everything would have been normal. But then what happened is this maniac got elected, and it disrupted us. And while I wouldn't wish that on anyone and he did run a fascist campaign, the fact is we now have to rethink everything. That's healthy for us. Let's rethink and let's not say, back to the Democrats, let's hope Hillary wins. No, there's alternatives to the Tweedledum, tweedledummer world. We have to build those alternatives right here.
1: Mhm. And the chapters that you laid out for us really enforce what you're saying about how we don't live single issue uh lives. Um and something I like to talk about with authors when we have them on is what are some things that you wish you would have included in this book that you didn't?
2: Ah, so much, so much. You know, I think that you know, the world keeps turning and the world keeps growing and and being more powerful. So and, and more more information comes in. I mean, one of the things, to me, the rhythm of being a a good, uh, the rhythm of being an activist, but the rhythm of being even a moral person or a good resident, a good citizen, the rhythm always involves three things, which are simple to say and excruciating to do. One is you have to pay attention. And I love your slogan, get woke, stay woke, however you all say it. But, you know, the idea that you have to pay attention, you have to open your eyes and then you have to be astonished. And sometimes we leave this out. In other words, you you can't just open your eyes. You have to be shocked and surprised at both the beauty and the ecstasy that's everywhere around us, the human connections, the love, the joy, the aesthetic, everything. And then you have to also be astonished at the unnecessary cruelty that we visit upon one another. And you can't get used to it. You can't be so woke that you say, oh yeah, homeless kids, that's normal, or permanent war, yeah, that's just the way it is. No, it is not the way it is. It's not the way it could be or should be. So you have to pay attention and then you have to be astonished and you have to let yourself wake up every morning blown away by how beautiful things are and how absolutely excruciatingly terrible they are. Then you have to act. You have to do something and then you have to doubt. And if we in the in the 60s and 70s, made one mistake. It's that we forgot to doubt. That is, you act without guarantees. You don't know what your action is going to lead to. My entire life, I've been told, don't do that. It'll turn people off. I've been told that my whole life. So in some ways, I stopped paying attention to it. But you have to then evaluate your action by doubting. In other words, or rethinking. You could call it rethinking. So once you act, you have to say, what did I do? What did it accomplish? And I was told, for example, the first time I was arrested at a sit-in, I was told it would turn people off. If you go back and look at the, at the polling numbers, when people sat in at lunch counters or went on those interstate buses, now it's 100% approval. Back then it was 20% Mm -hmm. approval. People said, oh, you're, you're doing bad things for race relations, you know? So I, you know, you act, but then you have to go back and say, and here's the criteria by which you doubt or or rethink. You say, who did I educate and what did I learn? If you didn't educate other people, then I don't care how you looked on the nightly news. That's irrelevant. I don't even care how many people you brought out. The question is, did you educate people around rethinking the issues? And did I learn something so that my next time out, I'm going to be more effective, more powerful, and so on? So I wish that, in many ways, I wish that I knew two years ago when I started this, what I know now. I wish I'd read ta Coates, you know, but he hadn't written. I mean, I'd read some of his stuff, but he hadn't written Between the World and Me, and he hadn't written the current book. I mean, that's the, the whole thing is you have to kind of open your eyes and keep taking things in. You can't be satisfied. And so I look at this, and I, and I think, for example... I mean the environmental justice movement was very much in the in the works when I was doing this but I think now I look at I look at uh how how I look at things like Standing Rock which I didn't really know about. I mean I didn't know about it the way they know about it. So I don't think I don't think I'm informed enough by indigenous resistance in this book. I don't think I'm informed enough by feminism in this book. It's not that those things weren't there. It's just that you know I'm still trying to keep up and learn and, and be a part of things. So yeah, I, I would write a different book today. In fact, one of the things that happened to me, I wrote my first book when I was 45 years old. I'm now 72. And I've written, I don't know, 20 books. But every time I write a book, it's funny that you said that because every time I write a book it's because I left something out of the last <laughs> book and I always think damn you know I should say more so so I never think that I'm going to write the perfect thing but I do want to be in the conversation and part of being in the conversation is demand of yourself that you keep speaking keep writing keep listening you know I'm a huge believer as a teacher that the basic pedagogical gesture for free people is dialogue that is speaking with the possibility of being heard but equally important, listening with the possibility of being changed. Maybe not 100%, but a little. Learning stuff so that you can speak more powerfully next time.
0: All right. So I am convinced. I definitely want to read this book. Thank you for writing it. And thank you for talking with us. If you uh, again, the book is Demand the Impossible, a radical manifesto by Bill Ayers uh, from Haymarket. And so if you wouldn't mind Bill closing us out with a final word and a favorite passage from the book.
2: You know, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. And I think one of the things that as radicals and revolutionaries that we shouldn't forget is we have to take a minute and read. We have to read and we have to study. It's not enough to be, um, to be active and to be courageous. Those things are important, but you have to be thoughtful. And so I'm a huge believer in reading. And I, Ta-Nehisi Coates, I heard him once speaking to a group of young people who wanted to be writers, and they asked him what they should read. And he said, read everything. And I thought that was a great response. I look around your house, page, and I say, "Yeah, you're a person who reads everything. That's what you should do." Um, you know, so I, I want us to be thoughtful. I want us to study. But your point in the beginning about our own agency and our own importance is huge to me. I remember the the great. Um, European revolutionary Rosa Luxemburg, at the turn of the last century, she was put in prison because she refused to f- uh, support World War I, her own government in, in the imperialist war. And a friend of hers wrote her, often she has letters back and forth, a friend of hers wrote her and said, Rosa, we're desperate without your leadership. We don't know what to do without you to lead us. And Luxembourg wrote back the most brilliant letter. It began by saying, first of all, stop whining. And I think that's good advice. That's good advice for the left. Stop whining. What good does it do? Where is it going to take you? And, and, and you know, it's just a waste of energy. And then she said, but the other point is that the the, the my advice to you is that you need to be a mensch. M-E-N-S-C-H. It's Yiddish. Um, you can Google it. But then she says... I can't tell you, I can't define mensch for you, but a mensch is someone who loves her own life enough to enjoy a bottle of wine with friends, to enjoy a good dinner, to marvel at the sunrise, to take care of the children and the elders. But a mensch is also someone who loves the world enough to put her shoulder on history's wheel when history demands it. You work that out day to day. You work out how you will you know love your life and love the world how you will be an activist and a decent person work that out collectively work that out individually and so that's my advice to everybody be a mensch demand the impossible and uh and and get busy so let me read just one you tell me i mean i'll read a little bit um from this book and and it and it, it's from the beginning about the imagination and it begins what if that simple humble question might be the single spark That can ignite a massive prairie fire provoking us to leap beyond personal speculation into the vortex of political struggle and social action this is how it's always been this is the world as we've always known it but why is it so who benefits and who suffers how did we get here and where do we really want to go what if we took a radically different angle of regard and questioned the insistent dogma of common sense what if we unleashed our wildest imaginations The what-if question might then blow open the spectrum of acceptable possibilities and take us down a rabbit hole or up into orbit onto one of life's restless and relentless journeys, exploring, experimenting, orbiting and spinning, inventing and adapting, struggling toward knowledge and enlightenment, freedom and liberation, fighting to know more in order to do more. All's well, says the town crier, making rounds through the village and lighting the lamps for the night, Perhaps it's simply a reassuring thought for the townspeople, or perhaps there's a more malevolent message, the toxic propaganda that the status quo is inevitable and that there's no alternative to the way things are. The dissident, the artist, the agitator, the dreamer, and the activist respond, no, all is not well. The current moment is neither immutable nor inescapable. It's Imperfections are cause for alarm. For the exploited and the oppressed, the status quo is an ongoing act of violence. Activists announce through their lives and their work that a new world is in the making. Get busy.
0: to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement.
1: We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May two Chicago-based organizers.
0: Special shout-out to The Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College.
1: Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place.
0: Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook.
1: And if you like this episode, give it a shout-out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep reading!